Welcome to The Power of Good, a podcast series that highlights the work of people doing great things, caring things, often life-saving things for other people. These are the altruists, the optimists, the social entrepreneurs among us, those helping others across backgrounds, politics, religion, and geography in compassionate and creative ways. I'm your host, Jake Murray, and join me as I seek out these inspiring leaders and innovators to learn more about their work, what they do for others, and why they do it. Like all cities, Boston is a composite of many cities, many histories, and many realities that play out across neighborhood, race, ethnicity, and class. Yet Boston stands out in its extremes. While Boston thrives, its innovation and tech economy soar, housing development booms, there is perhaps no other U.S. city with as stark a difference between those thriving and those surviving. Boston's wealth gap between white residents and residents of color is one of the largest in the country. In this episode of Power of Good, I interview those who are telling the story of a divided Boston. Boston residents Coffee Dixon and Carl Chandler and Tim McCarthy, a Harvard lecturer. The three of them met in the Clemente course, a rigorous community-based humanities class taught in 34 sites across the United States. The Clemente mission is to foster critical thinking through deep engagement with history, literature, philosophy, and art history. Coffee and Carl were students in the Clemente course. Tim was one of the course professors and has been for over 20 years. While in the course, they also met James Rutenbeck, a documentary filmmaker with plans to capture and share the transformative learning of the Clemente class experience. James quickly gravitated towards Coffee and Carl, and as the film project progressed, it changed direction dramatically. It became not only about the course, but also about the lives of Coffee and Carl and their experiences in a racially and economically divided Boston. Coffee, a 44-year-old black woman, shares openly her struggles with housing and her challenges to launch the first women's-run farm cooperative in the city on abandoned property. Carl, a 65-year-old retiree of black and Native American ancestry, also struggles with housing, lives off a small pension, and will do anything to ensure his two daughters and grandson can live a good life. And James becomes part of this story and film as well serving as a witness in real time to the challenges Coffee and Carl face. At the same time, Coffee and Carl become co-producers of the film. Four years later, the resulting film titled A Reckoning in Boston had its world premiere at Big Sky Documentary Film Festival last February and will screen virtually in May at the Independent Film Festival of Boston. Coffee, Carl, and Tim join me to share their perspectives on the many sides, often painful sides, of living and working in Boston and the transformative nature of the Clemente course. They also discuss the importance of James and all of us through the film, serving as witnesses to the harsh truths of a divided city. Further, they share their experiences making the film and their guarded hopes for what Boston might become in the future. Coffee, Carl, Tim, thank you for joining me today. I wanted to start by asking about the film title, A Reckoning in Boston. So what does this title mean to all of you? What is this reckoning for in the context of Boston? 
Boston is is close, if not at the point where it's a majority minority. What, what that basically means is that's a potential political force, like real power to effectuate positive social change. Okay. Old time power structure in Boston has got to reckon with that. They got to come to grips with that. When I was born, uh, the black population of Boston uh, was 3%. Boston was about 800,000 at that point. So you do the math and there weren't too many of us. Now, fast forward to now, the black population is about 25%. Add in Hispanic and Asian, and that's a potential powerful political block. When I think about reckoning, I think about a deep understanding, a deep understanding, a deep realization and honesty and authenticity about that realization. So when I think about the title of the film, it really gets into the history of Boston and the deep understanding of the history of Boston coming forward. And how do we sit with the history and the understanding around racial and class marginalization? And how do we, at this point, take the understanding towards a resolution? or healing at the least. You know, when I think about the word reckoning, building on what Coffee said about the truth, right? Confronting the truth. A reckoning for me is not an easy encounter. A reckoning is complicated and contentious encounter with a moment or realization that the truth is finally in the light. And that truth could be the truth of what Carl's talking about of shifting demographics of a city that is on the precipice or over the line of becoming a majority non-white city, right? With a shifting power structure and shifting community dynamics and racial and ethnic dynamics and so forth. But also a city that's, as it always has been, divided and separated and unequal in all of these kinds of ways that some people in the city don't want to, including some people in power, don't want to reckon with the truth of the grotesque inequalities and separations and divisions that have been constructed and designed to be in place and to, you know, structure how we live. To me, it just comes back, I'm a historian, right? So it it just comes back to me, like we have been miseducated around the kind of history of the city and of the country and of the world. And whenever you dig beneath that miseducation and explode the myths so that the truth can rise, whether you're pointing a camera on it in a sense of a documentary or you're studying it in a classroom together or however you confront the truth beneath the myths that are, that are part of that miseducation, that's a reckoning, right? And that's going to be hard. It's not never easy. It's not meant to be. The film began as a profile of the Clemente course, of which, Tim, you're one of the professors, and mm-hmm. and Carl, you are former students. I'm speaking as someone who has been in education for 20 years and always thinking about how to engage students in the coursework, how to get them to come to class. This is a course that is a free community course. No one's sort of asking or or making you go to this course. So I'm curious from Coffee and Carl, your perspective, what drew you to the course? And from Tim, your perspective, what drew you to teaching the course? So I have been teaching in Clemente since its founding. I was the founding American history professor, and I've been teaching in the course for all but two years. And I was the academic director for the course for uh, most of its first decade. What drew me to this initially, and I think enduringly, the reason I'm still with it, is that I believe that education should be available, accessible, and free to everybody, period. 
as a matter of justice. So when we talk about reckoning with inequality and inequity in American society and in Boston, we got to talk about education. Right? We got to talk about who gets to go to school, who can afford to go to school, right? In the midst of a global pandemic, the digital divide is also a race divide and a class divide and so many other kinds of divides. And for me, my day job, as I like to call it, is teaching at Harvard University. And so on the one side of things, like I teach at Harvard, which is an incredibly inaccessible school when you think about who gets to go there and who can afford to go there. And then Clemente on the, on the other side of the spectrum, which is, of course, in a different part of the city or the larger metro region. And it's a course that's free. And it's a course where I teach the same things that I teach at Harvard in Clemente. There's no difference in what I teach. I teach the same materials. I teach the same history with the same kind of approach. It's just in a different place with some different students. And the difference is that Clemente is far more accessible than Harvard will ever be, even on its best day. Um, and so for me, that's what it's about. Right? I teach the history of social movements. I teach a people's history right, of, of, the, of the country and of the world. And so you know, if I'm only doing that you know, in an ivory tower, an ivy tower, right? There's something really deeply ironic at best, if not problematic at worst. And so I was always drawn to it. When I heard of Clemente, I was like, I could teach in that course, right? And then I'm going to stay there because I believe that you don't do these things once, you got to stick with it. You know, what it means to be in solidarity with people is to keep going back, even if that's not the place that you're from. And now when I think about Dorchester and Cobman Square Health Center, right, those are places that are deep in my bones. I was talking to someone the other day, I did an interview about Clemente, and I said, you know, I've taught in Clemente for 40% of my life, 20 of the 50 years, I'll be 50 in June, 20 of the 50 years on this earth I've taught in Clemente, that's 40% of my life, and it's 80% of my life as a historian. It's an equity project, it's a justice project, it's a history project, and it's a truth project. I get to teach and learn with folks like Carl and Coffey. Coffee and Carl, why, what drew you to the course? Why show up at this course? Why spend your nights going to this course? There's no one telling you to do it. I mean, there were a lot of reasons I sought education as an adult. One of the biggest reasons was I have a middle school education. I only have a middle school education, traditional academic education. I went as far as middle school and um, a few months in high school. And then as a teenage mom, and as someone involved in foster care, detentional youth services, very much in the system, I wasn't able to attend high school. Someone with learning disabilities, dyslexia, all of these things that uh, went unaddressed as a younger woman that made the education inaccessible for me. I want to acknowledge the last generation of women and men but as I advocate for women who were denied access to, to education, to knowledge. And I think the most powerful reason that I enrolled in Clemente was I didn't feel like I was enough. And for a woman, of regardless of any race or culture, to feel like they are not enough in this world will bring out determination, either bring out oppression that stagnates them and that continues to mobilize them and their generations, especially the daughters, or could lead to epic determination to self-actualize and for that to be acknowledged. So the biggest reason that I enrolled, I used to think it was a lack of education, but it was a lack of self-actualization, a feeling that I wasn't enough in the work that I was trying to do as a Black woman. For me, uh, it was a matter of just the right timing. My youngest daughter was off to college, was trying to figure 
figure out what am I going to do to keep evolving as a human being? It popped into my head, I, I should go back to school. There's schools that have programs for older folks. When I was starting to check out that part, it, it's, it's money. It's not a lot, but it's still money. So I saw the flyer coincidentally for Clemente and free jumped out at me. And it was one of those deals where I was kind of doubtful at first. It's like, yeah, free with a $200 fee. (laughs) The book's only cost. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I checked it out, called out the gatekeeper. The process, the entry process was professional and respectful. So that got my attention. I thought "This, this might be pretty cool. Actually sat down in class and realized there's an Aboriginal woman activist in Australia that says to outsiders, if you come to help us, that, that's okay. And I'm paraphrasing here. If you come to help us, that's okay. Don't, don't bother. But if your liberation is tied up in ours, then you're welcome. I realized that my professors were operating with, with that sort of idea in mind. <laughs> It's been the best learning experience that I've ever had. It, it surpassed any expectations that I had. I, I, basically, I, I have four daughters. I try to be an example to them. And, and, you know, of course, part of that has to be constantly trying to evolve and improve myself. And a good part of that is, is making the effort to do things that are sometimes difficult. I was pretty focused on going to every class and doing all my work. I did okay. It was a vehicle for self-improvement, and it was also a vehicle to maybe show my daughters that you always got a shot, and if you need help, I'm there for you. The course offers a transformative experience for its students, but there are many courses. I've been in some. I've taught many. You've all been in courses. You've had coaches. You've had peak experiences. Most or many are not transformative. So why is this course different? What makes it different? What made it transformative is that I understood that the justice that I was experiencing personally as an individual, as a Black woman, was really structural. It was systemic. It was laid into the founding of this country. It wasn't that I wasn't educated. I did not have access to a traditional education. So it wasn't that I was, quote unquote, ignorant. I understood these things. I had sat down stared in the sky, thought about who I was, thought about my community many times and understood what someone like Professor McCarthy and like the other instructors at Clemente were willing to say, others have hypothesized on their life, on thriving, on living, on what it is to flourish and looking at how organizations operate, looking at how municipalities operate to find equity and equality in the way professors like Tim McCarthy looked at me and said that you were deserving of this knowledge. You were deserving of the philosophy of democracy by the Greeks that has informed the creation of our constitution and this country. You understand what a city is to you so that you can better understand how a city, how a commonwealth looks at you from the the points of philosophy. So the, the changing point was about one, the equity and the equality in education as adults with no shame, with professors who honored us and called us scholars. And I remember the first time I heard one of the professors say scholar, I almost wanted to turn my head around like, who are you talking to? For someone else to support in your actualization by doing nothing but acknowledging your power, your ability, or your capacity, 
that's what makes it transformative. And for someone to say, take those books with you, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, so that's the transformative part of it. It's the it's the support and, and self-actualization. It's the the equity, it's the quality, it's the dignity. None of the professors at any point that I think were perpetuating themselves as better than us. There was no invisible cape that was going on. They weren't dropping down to say, all you Black people in Dorchester here. No, <laughs> they were like, let's talk about this. And there's a scene in the documentary or there's a, there's a famous uh, interaction where Carl was like, what, do, what right do you have to teach us about our history? And I remember like sliding down in my chair, like, oh, bring the smoke, Carl. Like, and then I look at Professor McCarthy and respond eloquently, dignity, dignifying Carl's answer in a way that was thoughtful. He expressed his deep understanding and love of our community. I sat back up and like cracked open that book and was ready to go. Carl, Tim, you can follow that if you want. Uh, I had an experience where the film was, our film was put out for review and critiquing by people that had some experience uh, in the area. And there was a scene that this particular person zeroed in on, and it was Professor McCarthy speaking about, I believe it was Frederick Douglass. <laughs> and this person that was critiquing said, oh my, the white savior is talking about, about Frederick Douglass. And I'm the guy that like kind of put him on the spot, this like lightning bolt, like it hit me like, what is this person talking about? First of all, if a monkey could teach me properly, I would learn from a monkey, okay? But Professor McCarthy has proven himself. And the, the operative words for me are, are respect and dignity. Thank you both for, for that. So I have lots of thoughts in my head and in my heart responding to what I've just heard from my friends here. The first thing I would say is in terms of transformation, the course, I think, provides a space for different kinds of things to happen. The self-actualization that Coffee's talking about, the interrogation that was at the core of Carl's question to me about who am I? And that question was, was loaded with lots of questions, right? One question was, why are you here? Another question was, you're a white person, why are you here? Which is a different question. If I were a black person from Harvard, you might still ask, why are you here? Yep. But it's a different question than to yeah. ask a white person from Harvard why you're here in a room where you're one of the only white people. And I think in that room, I was the only white man. And that's important. There's other questions. What do you know? Where did you learn this? How are you going to teach this to us? Do you consider this your history or our history or someone else's history? Those questions are all legitimate. They're all important. And so this class offers the space for that. And it's not just a place where I ask questions of my students, right? That was the first day. We were literally going around the room and I asked them to introduce themselves and I asked them to tell me what their relationship with their learning of American history was and why they were here. That was literally the go round. It was the first day of introductions in my American history class. And Carl said, I want to turn the table. Here, I want to turn things around and ask you something. 
professor. <laughs> I'll admit, like the temperature rose in that moment, right? But it's not the first time someone's asked me that question, even in that room. I should be asked that question every year, you know? And then every year I can look back to the years behind me, the history of the commitment of coming back and being part and be able to hope that people will recognize that that's not some fleeting thing. I'm not there to help. I'm there because my liberation is indeed wrapped up in the liberation of all of us, even though we're positioned very differently in the world, in the city, and even in that classroom. The other thing too is that I do know the history and I love the history. And I think that the history is, is no one owns history. And if someone claims to own history, then they are doing something different than reckoning with the truth, right? They're claiming possession over something that has to do with all of us and that bears down on all of us, not just, not always in the same way. But to say that Frederick Douglass has nothing to do with me and only to do with Carl and Coffee is to misunderstand not only how history works, but I think also what Frederick Douglass committed his life to. You know, if you read Frederick Douglass's speech in 1876, where he's paying tribute to the slain President Abraham Lincoln, and he said, you know, Abraham Lincoln was preeminently the white man's president. We were but his stepchildren. If you don't think Frederick Douglass is talking to me in that moment, as well as to Carl and Coffey, then you don't understand Frederick Douglass. Mm. You know, I'm interested in not the surface of things. I'm interested in the depths. And that's another thing that I think that Clemente does and why I love history, because history requires us to go to the depths, right? We can't stay on the surface. The surface is now. The past is the iceberg that's submerged or the roots that bury deep into the soil. The twin sins of the nation at its founding and before its founding, of course, were the colonial settlement of the lands of peoples who were here long before most people got here and the enslavement of people, the forced trafficking and imprisonment and torture and murder in some cases of people from another continent brought here to work against their will with no compensation or Prospects for Freedom, which leads us back to Frederick Douglass. That's the space that this class creates, mm. right? And we wrestle together with it and we debate and we, we don't always agree and we're coming from different perspectives, but that's why no one owns history or no one should own history. Because if, if history is free, then we can, we can, at least in the context of the courses that I want to be part of, we can come together to reckon with the truth of that history so that we can all become more free. Amen. That to me is the transformative power, the little piece of what I try to contribute to Clemente. Coffee and Carl, let's switch to talk about the journey you've been on from students in the Clemente course to principal subjects of the film about the course to now being co-producers of the film along with the director and original producer, James Rutenbeck. What was this evolution like for you? Why did you want to be part of the film, become more involved in the film? Um, were you reluctant? Were you excited? So talk through that progression. There were two aspects for me. First of all, it was uh, being involved with the film was a way for me to say thank you to uh, Clemente. The other aspect was to leave a legacy. I have four daughters and seven grandsons. So all of them are very curious about family history. So I thought this is maybe a piece of the legacy that I could leave them about, about their background. So it was, it, it's hard watching yourself, at least for me, it's hard watching myself on film, never going to get used to it. 
but I thought it, it was a small price to pay for what the payoff could be for my family and Clemente, because not only was, was Clemente beneficial for me, but my daughter's watching me go through the experience. It, it's like kind of a, an eye opener for them. I've tried to instill in them that education is ongoing. It never, never stops if you want to be an evolutionary person. The thing about kids, you can tell them some things and their eyes kind of glaze over and it's like, oh, Lord, would this old man just be quiet? But then when they see it happening in real, then it, it makes an impression. So I see all my daughters improving in that way, you know, and, and evolving in that way. People don't understand this, but I can be a bit introverted and I can be a bit reclusive. If we think about being Black as an experience, not just the color of your skin, but being Black as an experience and the, the depth of your Blackness is the depth of your experiences around the color of your skin, right? Around your socioeconomic standing, which is based on the color of your skin, around the lack of access, which is based on the color of your skin. When you grow up feeling vulnerable, you learn how to hide and you learn how to do things under the cloak of darkness and keep things to yourself. You know, that's a famous thing that Black grandmothers will tell you at the church. Not everything is for everybody. Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I came into the Clemente and was approached by James who wanted to know more about my work that, again, not feeling I was enough to do this work or being in spaces where I was deemed not enough to be heard, to be taken seriously, to be acknowledged, to be supported. Here, James is wanting to know more about the work. Initially, I was hesitant because I, at the same time that I was going to find something that would support the work that I was trying to do and how I told the story, I needed to tell the story because the space for me in doing this work was becoming more and more violent. I was retreating, not in being an introvert, but I was retreating in fear. There were many moments documented in the documentary and the clips that did not make it into the film where I acknowledged to James that I did not think that I was going to survive the violent spaces where I wasn't enough, where this cooperative wasn't enough where we as women weren't enough to overcome passion pilfering, experience pilfering, right? The poverty pimping that is often done in our community and unacknowledged that I didn't know if I would be able to not just intellectually survive, but I didn't know if I would be able to physically survive. And there was a realization that Black women in this work around social justice, really I'm a social entrepreneur, right? This is a social enterprise, but anytime we engage social justice and community violence, our lifespans are reduced. And I was feeling that. I wasn't feeling the pain of it. I was intuitively feeling that these spaces, that was the darkness. So in feeling like I wasn't going to survive and him talking about, can we know more about your work and feel more about your work? I was just like, I don't think this co-op is going to survive this idea. James provided an opportunity with the documentary that regardless of what happened to me or the organization, it was documented that my work, my intention would be documented through the eyes of Clemente, through the eyes of what I was learning. I learned from Tim being able to recount the history and talking about documenting history that 
if I wanted someone to ever know about this work, that to keep this work going, that it needed to be documented. So I said, all right, whatever. You want to follow me around? Knock yourself out. We're just going to document this work. And in documenting, James also became a witness. And that was a powerful thing in the documentary. And he was witnessing with Carl and I things that did not make it into the documentary, which were changing him. And I could see him struggling. And Carl and I would talk about it often, that we had dragged this white man into our experience around Blackness with just the hands and the the intelligence of me and Carl, our kindness and guiding him. But I also saw him carrying the burden of not our experiences, but how whiteness and white supremacy and power and privilege and racism and classism. I was seeing how that was changing him. And I also saw how he was feeling guilt, shame, and disempowerment. God forgive me for saying this because I'm not saying that he was, you know, a leaf blowing in the wind. But when people come into our world, truly people hypothesize about our experience, reference our experience, but the lived experience and to be a witness to that, you know, the resilience of Blackness comes because we learn generationally how to get past the challenges of our Blackness. I was watching James become stuck in the experiences and hopeless to his witnessing. And in that hopelessness, I realized that he wanted a happy ending. Him wanting to buffer the world from what he was witnessing until the easy story was constantly impacting what type of story was told, what was shown in the documentary. And for him providing us co-producer credits, Carla and I saying to him, let us help you with this. Let's help you tell our story and tell the story of our community. Let it not be mistold because white America wants the happy ending. They want to see the farm done. They want to see us, Carl and Harvard. (laughs) They want us to reach that mountaintop that uh, Martin Luther King once talked about. But what Martin Luther King didn't talk about, that was his wish and his vision. There are still a lot of people who are at the base of that mountain. And we like to retell the story and, and to relive the speech of Martin Luther King. But we don't think about the people who have not made it up that mountain. They haven't even made it to base camp. In James being, help me tell this story. Yes, help me tell the story. And giving us equity in the story and giving us dignity. We then realize that in James's witnessing as a director, he was also part of the story as a white man who was witnessing the experiences of two Black people who were highly intelligent, highly competent, who were experiencing housing insecurities, homelessness, who had constantly through our lives have been subject to that violence, who were experiencing marginalization, who were being threatened, and who in our basicness, all we wanted was better for our families and our communities. So um, that was the trajectory of coming into Clemente moving into co-producers to be able to tell our story and then bringing James into the documentary as a white witness to our experiences where many people that are not part of our race and class dare not to think past an article of how we exist in the city and even worse, how we survive or do not survive. Kathy mentioned an important word, that's witness. And Everybody involved in the Clemente process, in particular the professors, they're also, besides being teachers, they're also witnesses. The witnesses, they need to contribute 
their part more than just the expected. I just want to honor two things that Coffee and Carl just said that I think are really important. The witness piece, and particularly the witness of white people in a society where, you know, to witness is to see and to take in and ultimately to reckon, right? And it's not just a reckoning with what you're seeing that's outside of you. It's actually reckoning, which is what happened to James and why I think the film is much different than it was going to be and certainly much different than it was set out to be because YouTube woke him up in that way and, and, and forced him to become a witness. And then it became part of a film, and it's a very different film than anything he's done before because he has, as a filmmaker, been very reluctant to become part of his stories. He's, he's much more of, a, of an external storyteller. And to bear witness or to become a witness and to see Right. I was I just taught Amazing Grace the other day in the, the, the line. Right. I was I was lost and now I'm found. I once was blind and now I see, which is a song, which are lyrics that were written by John Newton in the late 18th century, who was a slave trader. Right. He died in the storm on the seas as a slave trader and then asked for Amazing Grace from God to get through the storm. And he survived. And then the second turn of conversion for him, saving him being saved as a slave trader and then reaching the safety of shores again, then he becomes converted to abolitionism and he becomes an abolitionist. So here's this white slave trader who's saved in a storm doing that work and then becomes an abolitionist and writes Amazing Grace. He too became a witness and being a witness means that you can now see, which means that you must reckon with the lie that kept you blind in the first place. (laughs) which is whiteness. That's the whole thing. So when, when you talk, getting back to the first question you asked about reckoning in Boston, like this film's about a lot of reckoning. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us in this film who's been associated with it, and I'm just associated with it in my own little way, but it, we've all had a reckoning. Uh, and what I hope the film does is it, it induces in Boston a reckoning with mm-hmm. itself to be able to see things that are right there. Copy. Land and space and the peace and the purpose that they give you are important themes for you throughout the film. Explain why land and space and the work that you will do on the land is so important to you. This land was stolen from us. And not only was this land stolen from us, I apologize if anybody's uncomfortable with what I'm about to say, but our sons and daughters have died on this land. There's not an empty lot in the city of Boston, an apartment or a house. My daughter's father died behind in an empty lot on 21 Only Street, was killed and bled to death in that backyard. There was a young man who ran onto this farmland and and bled to death and died. Every one of these lots in Boston, these houses, they are filled with the blood of Black, immigrant, and Indigenous people. And I'm not talking about that as our history. I am talking about that is still going on. And I was looking at the land and how land use in Boston went and realizing that there were wealthy, wealthy developers putting in low income housing that was attached to tax credits that expired between five, 10 to 15 years, where then their low income housing could go to market prices. I had a deep understanding of that. And they all had voice in the process of what happened to the land. The only people who did not have a voice was the working class women who were going to the supermarket on Saturday and Sunday with their food stamps. Not because they were underpaid, but because the rents were so high. Childcare was so high. 
they were being feed to death and the owning and having cars and ticketed to death. We don't have a voice and impact, or we don't trust the process in how our voice will be heard in designing our community. So we check out or our voice is given to somebody else and somebody else speaks for our cause because they're received within those networks. There are people who've made a killing in this world while we, our, our sisters and our brothers are still out here in the struggle trying to pay $1,500 for a studio apartment or like Carl and forgive me, Carl, like living in one room with their, with their daughters because they are under house. So my relationship to the land I cannot make this a fluffy conversation where I talk about waking up and being a vegetarian, access to healthy food. Yes, for some people, I will give them that because that's a very easy conversation to have. Most people who are doing social impact farms, most farmers talk about having autonomy and access to healthy space. But the truth about it is the land is our blood is in this land and this should be equitable and it's not. That is my relationship to it. This project has little to do with farming and has more to do with untethered autonomous equity for the Black communities who are being marginalized on streets where they generationally existed and no longer belong. So that's my relationship to the land. We have been marginalized as a community. The biggest violence of racism and classism right now are not being called a nigger anymore and not being told you're poor. The biggest assault, the biggest example of racism and classism is the lack of transparency and access to information. That's the violence. When someone decides what they want to tell me is available to me and how to get it, that's violent. That's racist. That's classist. If you feel like that information is better used in somebody else's hand that you're more in tune with, you are a part of the problem, not rather than solution. When a Black woman comes to you and says, I've started a co-op, we've started a farm, we are feeding women, we need your help and support, information should not be withheld. It should be provided in abundance. But because of racial bias, racial marginalization, and I'm, I'm saying this to my brothers and sisters, it's Black and Brown people who are also guilty of racial bias and racial marginalization and um, bringing in issues of classism within doing this work all the work that's needed to get Boston from a city with is $8 in equity for black people and 200 and something <laughs> for white people, the, the, the wealth. The simple answer is, this is, our, this is our community. This is our community. That's the whole thing of land. I didn't just decide to put a farm on this land. I decided as one single black woman advocating for a movement of black women to say, this is yours. Stop asking for what is yours. You are taxpayers. Your residents, your constituents. Thanks, Coffee. Thank you. So, Carl, you have this message, and I'm paraphrasing in the film that life is about the journey and how you walk the journey. And there's joy, there's pain, there's struggle. It's not about necessarily the destination or the accolades or the accomplishments uh, that you acquire or you or collect in your life. And you have this very poignant moment with your daughter when you're talking about that. Is this a philosophy, a way of being that you've always carried? Or is it something that you've developed over time and sort of later in your life, this is how I see the world? I grasped the journey pretty early. My ideas have been refined, of course. But my journey started at the uh, doors of no return 
in Ghana. 10,000 black men, women, and children were sent through those doors in Ghana every year for a long time. I, I have some ties to this land from long ago, but basically I'm in transition. And part of my job is to give tools to my offspring so that they land in a place that they want to be in. So yeah, I, I've always had this. I mean, I come from a tradition, black part of my family's been here for a long time. The Irish part of my family's been here for a long time. The indigenous people in my family, have, they sprung up from the soil, so. Thank you, Carl. My last question, in the film, you know, Boston plays a prominent role and it's the lived experience and the context for the students as they're going through their coursework, what they review on and reflect on in, in terms of the Clemente course. So I'm wondering how making the film and completing the course informed or changed your understanding of the city or changed in any way your relationship with the city. My understanding of Boston after the Clemente course was between Professor McCarthy and his teachings or remembrance of the experiences of Boston around segregation and busing in my lifetime. In my lifetime, we all want to forget how Marky Mark went to the Pope and asked the Pope for forgiveness for blinding a Vietnamese man and beating a Black man. We, we all, I even when I watch a, a movie by Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg, I want to forget. I want to forget when I'm standing at Wahlbergers that they were uh, people who were involved in racial violence. We could all do with remembering what Boston was. We could all do remembering who Benjamin Banneker was. We could all do with a history lesson in Boston to make sure we're not recreating in a well-intentioned manner, some of the same marginalization that has our history not front and center of talking about issues of race and class in the city. It literally opens your understanding. And for me, provided me extra determination of why this work for a women's co-op was so important. And why this work for a women's co-op in a well-resourced liberal city, even though it wasn't wanted or supported, was important. And that was based on the history of the city and knowing that it was possible to do better and have better and not really seeing that in Boston fully acknowledged and fully supported, even as we move into a space with the city appointing its first uh, woman of color mayor. The busing order in Boston is a generation after Brown v. Board, right? The Boston busing order is the mid-1970s, and Brown v. Board of Education is 1954. So 20 years after Brown and the Montgomery bus boycott, Boston has its moment. You know, yesterday, two days ago, the new mayor of Boston, the first Black woman, the first, the first African-American woman, first African-American and first woman to be mayor of Boston. I mean, you know, it's only... 2021, why rush? What did she do on her first day? She went to the school that she had been bused to from Roxbury. She went to the school on her first day as, as, and talked so powerfully about the fact that she had been a kid who was caught up in busing, right? Now she's the mayor of the city. To Kavi's point, this ain't ancient history. This is our lifetime. Carl, talk about the city and what's your evolving understanding based on the course the experience in the film, or maybe it's reaffirming versus evolving. I have uh, 
strong ties to Massachusetts and Boston. I wonder what kind of future my daughters and grandson have here. To sort of illustrate it, my daughter Stella, who's uh, 28 years old, has a son, uh, seven. I talk about, well, what do you think about the future? And Yadiel, my grandson, what do you think about the future? And she shakes her head, hangs her head and said, another black boy in Boston. Go a little back for some perspective. When uh, Yadiel was born and I went to the hospital to visit Stella, she had tears and (laughs) haven't been through it so many times. I figured, oh, postpartum, she'll she'll get through it. after a while, it wasn't going away. And I thought, oh, I, I got to get on this. And I said, what's, what's going on? Do you want to tell me about it? And she said, my son is going to be a target. I mean, I, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> that makes sense. That's Boston. I mean, I'm born here, left, been other places. Uh, I'm 72 years old and like, Progress can be relative, which is another way of saying we're not doing enough. Tim, anything you want to add? You know, one of my favorite lines from the poet Walt Whitman, who was a a, a radical poet in his time, and line in Song of Myself, one of his great epic poems, says, do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. You know, you can apply that to many things. <laughs> but Boston is a place that contains multitudes. And those multitudes are changing, as they often do. It's also a place that has multiple contradictions. And there is, of course, a pride of place that many of us feel for the places where our roots are buried. And that's human, to want to call a place home or claim a place as one's own. Those are deeply human impulses. Yet this place, this hub or home of Boston is a place where so many of us feel like we don't belong, even though we've been here all along, or we find it to be a place where we can't afford to live in a home. So Boston's full of contradictions. You know, that's another reckoning, I think, that the movie's trying to do, but that that our lives, I think, are wrapped up in. You know, sure, there's a freedom story of Boston, absolutely. There are many freedom stories in Boston. We don't want to ignore them. But there's also slavery stories and settlement stories and migration stories and stories of uncommon classrooms like the one we share in Clemente and then classrooms that are absolutely inaccessible to the vast majority of people who live in Boston in the very universities that take up so much of the space of this city that make it so much harder for people to find places to live. And oh, the irony of that. In Boston's literally in the Seaport District, Boston just built in the span of a decade an all-white neighborhood that's absolutely economically inaccessible to 99% of the people who live in this metro area. How does a city do that? And once it does that, get away with it without being forced to reckon with itself. Carl and Coffee, good luck with the film project. Tim, good luck with 
the course. The beat goes on. We're, it's our 20th year, two decades, yeah. a generation, and we're, uh, we're just getting started. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Power of Good, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please check out some other episodes. And if you're interested in learning more about the Clemente course, please visit their website at clementecourse.org.